Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. We continue to work our way through the opening couple of chapters of Luke's account of the good news, which, as Luke himself tells us, is a carefully researched and orderly put-together account uh, with a purpose that you may also enjoy certainty, along with Luke's original intended uh, audience, Theophilus, the beloved of God, uh, you may also come to that certainty concerning the things you have been taught of the Lord. And uh, it's really a book of assurance for all the believers to read the record through the lens in these opening chapters of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And our passage this morning uh, is verses 39 through uh, 56. And the passage brings together two pregnant mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, uh, in the sheer joy of the gospel together. So we'll uh, read our passage, beginning in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. Let's uh, hear God's word, and then we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we sit under the preaching of it. Verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will, be, will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty he has helped his servant israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to abraham and to his offspring forever and mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home thus far this uh, ends the reading of god's word let's uh, look to our god again in prayer and call upon his name and seek his help and blessing let's pray together a gracious Father and a great God, and we uh, rejoice in the fact that you are a God who truly uh, feeds the hungry with good things, and we come into your presence uh, with uh, souls that are hungry, with hands that are empty, and pray that you would satisfy us as with fat and rich food of the gospel, that through the preaching of the word, in tasting a fresh uh, your goodness 
being filled with uh, the joy of your loving kindness, our hearts would redound with praise, our souls would bless and magnify your name, and our spirit and our lips uh, would uh, go on declaring your praise. So do this in our midst. Work in us, we pray, and look upon us in your mercy and send that blessing in Christ through your word by the ministry of your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage really opens with a travel plan, Mary making her way with haste to go to the countryside near Jerusalem to one rural town in Judah. And, of course, not an easy journey for a recently pregnant, likely teenage young girl traveling more than 70 miles from Nazareth in Galilee, her hometown, down to the Judean hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth live to visit their home, as we see in our passage and there in the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, these two women, Mary and Elizabeth, these two daughters of Zion, each recently visited by the angel Gabriel, each with a child in the womb, staying together for three months during what would become Mary's first trimester and Elizabeth's last trimester before the birth of John the Baptist. And as you can imagine, surely they would have have much to talk about and to marvel together at the glorious intervention of God in their lives and to try to encourage each other with a shared experience of the Lord. Indeed, as we read through the passage, it's all excitement and joy. At the end of Mary's journey, upon her arrival in Elizabeth's home, upon their meeting together, all that we see is an outburst of joy. Elizabeth breaks forth into joy. Mary breaks forth into joy. These mothers to be rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit together in their holy conference. And Elizabeth literally gets a kick out of it. Also, she feels the baby John leaping in her womb at the sound of marriage greeting and also expressing joy fetally. Joy and blessedness that abound in this passage that we see among these two women are the exact same joy and blessedness that abound in the whole church of Jesus Christ, the same joy and blessings that have come upon you through Jesus Christ, uh, your Savior. It's the joy of the gospel, isn't it? It's the joy in Jesus. It's the joy you have tasted. It's the joy that Christ gives to you. And in that joy, uh, Mary goes on to raise a song of praise in worship in what we have come to know from church tradition the Magnificat, the song of praise to God the Savior. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God. And of course, Mary is a good Presbyterian girl. Of course, do you realize that all faithful Jews in the Old Covenant were Presbyterians, of course, governed by elders, under living under the reign and rule of the Lord Savior, holding fast the confession, and being, of course, a good Presbyterian woman, Mary instinctively lifts up a song in the fullness of the Spirit that answers the first question in the Shorter Catechism when she declares, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, that this is my chief and then indeed chief delight, that I am glorifying God with all of my soul and enjoying him forever. Mary is wanting to magnify God 
that is not to make God great, but to express the greatness that God has by the words that we use in order to declare how great and glorious our God is. And her soul magnifies the Lord as she does that. Her spirit simultaneously rejoices in God. That's what happens in worship every time, isn't it? Your soul is taken up with God in glory, and you rejoice in him as your Savior. And Mary puts together these two glorious essentials of spiritual life, these privileges that only the gospel can give birth to in our hearts, the marvelous, mysterious, secret reality that has been born in the heart of every Christian believer, that honoring and glorifying and seeing the greatness of God always goes hand in hand with a spirit that rejoices and delights and takes satisfaction in God the Savior. The two things that to those who are not Christians are always seen as opposites and cannot be brought together. To them, magnifying God means minimizing joy and maximizing joy means having to marginalize God out of your life. And Mary, to the contrary, here rejoices and glorifies in our God. What produces the spirit in a person that can so effortlessly and spontaneously bring these two things together? And what marries these two things together in your own soul, in your Christian living? What makes your good, reformed, confessional Presbyterian like Mary, who is full of joy and holy reverence, what creates a good, reformed, confessional Presbyterian church that worships God in spirit and in truth, that simultaneously glorifies God and rejoices in him. If you think about it, this song is really descriptive of heaven itself, that place that we heard about at the beginning of the worship service in the call to worship, where all spirits made perfect will magnify the Lord and all will rejoice in God as Savior, where eternal praise and eternal pleasures abound forevermore. What makes you fit for heaven and what makes you long for heaven and enjoy the foretaste of it whenever the church gathers in worship? And the answer is simple. It's the gospel. It's Christ and salvation found in him that causes your soul to burst forth in joy and in praise, in wonder, in adoration of the Savior. Now, of course, this spirit is not something that can be conjured up or worked up from within. It's not something that you can just create by your own strength and efforts as though you can work this up from within. It needs to come down from above. It needs to be given to you by God through his spirit in the word. And it is as you see the things that Mary sees in this passage the great things that God has done in the gospel, that as they touch your heart, they also tune your heart to sing God's praise. And I want you to see them in two ways this morning, the joy and blessings that are expressed in our passage in two ways. First, I want you to see how there's this joy and blessing expressed in the fellowship enjoyed between Mary and Elizabeth in the fullness of the Spirit. And secondly, I want you to see that joy and blessing abounding through the song of praise that Mary's mouth utters in worship of the God of her salvation. 
simply put, our whole passage presents before you a picture of these two things that you have whenever you come together as the church. Spirit-filled fellowship in the encouragement of each other's faith and God-centered worship to the praise of his glorious grace. And I want you to see each of them this morning. And first, look at the Christ-centered fellowship in the fullness of the Spirit. This meeting of Mary and Elizabeth described in verses 39 and 45. Of course, in one sense, this is a very extraordinary meeting, a redemptive, historically unique and unrepeatable meeting, not only of two mothers, but of two infants in the womb, Jesus and John the Baptist. There's something unique and unrepeatable about that. But in another sense, this is a meeting of just two ordinary believers in the fellowship of the saints, Mary and Elizabeth. This is just like what you have in the Christian life, whatever saints gather together around spiritual things. And so that's the whole point of emphasis thus far in the narrative, that Mary and Elizabeth are not some super saints. They are just like us, believers. They are in and of themselves weak, frail, humble, lowly believers waiting upon the Lord, living by faith, clinging to the promises of God, whose lives nonetheless have been externally touched by the grace of God. And here they have this holy conference between the two of them. And the first thing, Mary, upon being spoken to by the angel Gabriel, seeks out to the point of traveling a great distance is the fellowship of Mary. You can just imagine what sorts of encouragement and consolation and comfort Elizabeth's presence and example would have been to this young woman about to undertake a great task, an impassable task, no doubt filled with fear and trepidation at what might lie ahead of her life as she seeks to live by faith. And she goes to see Elizabeth, and no distance is too great for her, and she joins herself into the company of Elizabeth, as it were, as an older woman figure to her. And there's this joyful greeting, holy conference, fellowship among them in the power of the Holy Spirit in the home of Zechariah. We read in the text that Elizabeth is filled with a spirit. Mary, as evidenced by his, her song of praise, was also filled with a spirit. The six-month-old John in the womb is filled with a spirit. And the embryo Jesus in marriage uterus at that point was, of course, conceived by the Spirit. And even Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, at this point unable to speak or to listen, maybe joining in and listening in, it's a gathering of believers. And what created this is the coming of Jesus into the world, into the womb of Mary. Jesus' coming has occasioned this gathering among the godly. And we see several marks of spirit-filled fellowship in the abundance of joy and blessedness. And these are the things that we are going to see always whenever the Spirit fills his people. I want you to see just briefly four things that marked out their meeting together. First, I want you to see how this was a Christ-centered meeting in its substance and focus. Elizabeth, Elizabeth declares in verse 42, the fruit of marriage womb to be blessed the baby in marriage womb, the Lord Jesus to be blessed. And she even goes so far as to call the embryo in marriage womb 
uh, my Lord. How could it be that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Here, Elizabeth, by faith, comprehending something of the worthiness of the baby in the mother's womb, Jesus as the Savior, she's calling the promised seed of the woman she sees in Mary's womb blessed. She's blessing Jesus Christ, and this conference was full of Christ as the sole focus of fellowship. She's blessing the Lord, her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly, this is also marked by a sense of sheer wonder. Look at verse 43. Uh, Elizabeth is almost beside herself. She's awestruck and says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's awestruck by this magnificent thought that she should be visited by the immediate family relation of her Savior. Why me? What privilege given to me that I should be in the presence of one physically bearing Jesus in whom resides my Savior? And Elizabeth was almost uncontainable, could not believe it's too good to be true. Why should I be so graced with a presence of one in whom the Savior dwells? If you pause and think about it, this is the privilege all the more greater privilege given to you in the New Covenant. This is something that happens to you or should happen to you every week, the sense of awe and wonder that should fill you whenever you are in the company of the saints as you gather together as the church, that these people in the congregation are the brothers, sisters, mothers of Jesus, those who have believed his word. They are the ones in whom the Lord Jesus Christ dwells. Does it ever strike you that you should be in the presence of the people of God in whom the Lord Jesus Christ dwells? Do you know what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking of those believers as new creation in Christ Jesus? Paul says, from now on, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. And when you are filled with the Spirit, this is how you begin to relate to and see fellow believers, primarily as ones in whom Jesus Christ dwells, that Christ is in them. Jesus is a living person, and the hope of glory for every Christian believer is this, that in the wonder of the Spirit's ministry, Christ himself comes to dwell in the believer. And when in the fullness of the Spirit, uh, when that immensity of that thought begins to fill you and control you all the more, uh, you begin to say, why me? Why I, that I should be in the presence of the people of Christ and speak of the things of Christ and rub shoulders with the heirs of glory and come together with those in whom my Savior dwells? Does that ever dawn upon you in the gospel, the sheer privilege given to you to which you purposefully and eagerly attach yourself each week, does that fill you with wonder as you come together as the saints? Why me? This is the uh, sheer sense of wonder that the hymn writer says, 
how sweet and awesome is this place with Christ within the doors. Each of cries out with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Indeed, blessed are the ones who know the blessedness of being near the relations of the Lord Jesus. Then thirdly, the Spirit fills his people. And whenever that happens, there is this inward joy that expresses itself outwardly towards the Lord Jesus. That's the third thing I want you to see, the inward joy that expresses outwardly towards the Lord Jesus. Uh, notice what happens to uh, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, she felt a kick in her womb. The baby John leaped in the womb. The baby couldn't contain himself. And sometimes you see that in the church, don't you? The children filled with the Spirit, doing what children normally do, making movements, sounds, blurting out unfiltered, unadulterated expressions of sincere faith, praise, thanks. And Psalm 8 says, Lord, you have ordained praise in the mouths of infants and babes. Do adults ever do that? Or should adults ever do that in the church? But the word uses here of the baby John, leapt for joy. Throughout the Bible is used of eschatological joy. That is the joy that salvation creates in God's people. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It is something that describes the very atmosphere of the church of God when after the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, remember how the people of God devoted themselves to the word, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. We read in Acts 2, continuing daily in the temple with great gladness and joy. It's the same word. And here the infant is expressing that with a fetal kick that Christ has come. The ransom of the Lord returning to Zion with joy and God's people presented before the presence of his glory with great joy. These are words all describing joy of the world to come, breaking into people's lives. And we see the sound of the gospel, the voice of our Savior, heralded in the unfolding of the scriptures that made the baby John leap for joy in the very liquid darkness of his mother's womb. It's the very same good news that also makes our hearts pulsate with that kind of joy. Whenever the Spirit is at work in us, then this kind of joy will express itself outwardly. And then you see that also in Mary. She burst out in a joyful song, singing with gladness in her heart, and singing and coming into God's presence with singing. And that's what Spirit-filled fellowship always produces it's Christ-centered it's full of wonder at the sure privilege of being presence in the presence of the family of Jesus and there's this exuberant joy that expresses itself outwardly towards the Lord Jesus and then fourthly I want you to see how spirit-filled fellowship always recognizes the blessedness the happiness of the one who walks by faith because after all, this is a community of faith. And those who walk by faith and live by faith, who look to the word, mutually recognize the blessedness of those who believe. 
Look down in verse 45. Uh, Mary says, uh, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Happy is the one who believed what was spoken. And it's in the context of this holy conference that Mary, in all the frailty of her faith, nonetheless in her spiritual resolve, receives a buttressing encouragement from another believer calling her blessed because she is living by faith. And isn't that true of you? When you gather together, you have fellow believers living by faith, living by the same promises of God, seeking to encourage you and build you up and calling you blessed. And this is the way we walk, the people of God. So that's the fellowship. The fellowship which God places you in when the spirit of his son dwells in you, when God brings you to Christ. And that's the communion of a saints in church fellowship. And this is a supernatural phenomenon. Only the Spirit can create this. And filled with the Holy Spirit, you discover more and more of these things. How the gospel brings you to a sense of wonder and joy towards Christ and fills you with a sense of blessedness, being surrounded by the presence of Christ and by the work of his grace in each of our lives who testify to that work and who believe. So here we have a spirit-filled fellowship and uh, something that you have also uh, from the Lord. Uh, the joy and blessedness in it created uh, because of the gospel. Then secondly, I want you to look at the song, a praise that follows. And having spoken with Elizabeth, Mary then in the fullness of the Spirit, utters these words of praise to the praise of God's glorious grace. You see that in verses 46 through 55. This short catechism hymn, again, which only the gospel can personalize it for you and put in your own lips, magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God as the Savior. And what this song is ultimately celebrating and is taken up with is what we ourselves sang at the beginning of the service when we cried, Holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Isn't that what Mary says in verse 40? Nine, he who is mighty has done great things. Holy is his name. Verse 50, his mercy displayed for all who fear him from generation to generation. Mary is joyfully declaring that God has done great things. In his might, in his mercy, in his power, in his goodness, he has come as the Savior, and it causes her to burst out into singing. And she's like that believer in Psalm 84. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And Mary, the whole song is fueled by one thing and one thing primarily. That is the discovery of God's amazing grace in the salvation that God has accomplished. Brothers and sisters, for you to live as the Shorter Catechism man and woman, the only thing that can enable you to do that, to glorify God and to enjoy Him, 
The only thing that can enable you to do that is the gospel, the riches of the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ. That alone can make your soul rejoice in God and glorify and magnify him with your spirit. And Mary is recounting all the various ways that God has worked in salvation, and he does, she does so uh, scripturally. The great things that God, her Savior, has done. The song, and I won't provide a laundry list of all the quotes that uh, can fill up a whole page, but the song here is truly packed with the Old Testament scriptures. These are words drawn from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, Job, Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, in addition to the Psalms. What is it that God's people ought to sing in worship? We sing the great things that God has done from all of scriptures. When the Spirit fills you, scripture comes alive. It's not as though this was some academic composition that Mary sat in front of a computer and started typing, thinking, and churning out a paper. This is scripture stored up in her heart, starting to pour forth out of her mouth as Mary is in the spirit. And the same thing happens to you, doesn't it? When you sing God's praise, you're told that you ought to let the words of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the gospel dwell richly in you. And then singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness and joy in your hearts and scripturally using the word of God already given and composing it woven together in the spirit, Mary is singing about the great things that God has done for her in salvation. And just look at the way she expresses the gospel. Uh, it is given in terms of the actions of God. Uh, verse 48, God has looked on the humble estate. It's really expressing what God has done with his own eyes. He has looked upon us in our humble estate. Oh, verse 52, he with his mighty arm. Oh, verse 51, he is with his mighty arm, arm of strength. He has scattered the proud and lifted up the humble. And verse 55, he has kept what he has spoken with his own mouth. This is all of God, all of God's action. This is Mary preaching the gospel, if you will, and just unpack the grace of God revealed here. Just unpack what the grace of God has done for you. The three things Mary mentions here. First, uh, Mary says, God has looked over and looked on the humble estate of his people. Mary's conscious that God looked down upon her God has known her in his amazing grace. God has visited her and been gracious to her. And therefore, from now on, all generations can call me blessed because of the coming of Christ. Now, is that same for you in the gospel that God has looked upon you when you're in your sin, when you're brought low, when you're dead in your sins and trespasses, when you're in spiritual bankruptcy? In your humble estate, by God's grace, you first come to be aware of your spiritual poverty and then to know God who comes to you in fullness of pity and compassion, who looks upon your humble state and shows mercy and grace to you. 
And he does that by sending his son to you. Now, how does God look upon you in his condescending grace and goodness? You see that in the coming of the Son of God, that he should send his beloved son. Now, what an anchor for, uh, for your soul. When you are gripped by the frailty of the flesh, by your sin, by any paralyzing thoughts through life, Mary must have been a teenage girl, any teenage girl, struggling with a thought. Is there anyone who understands me or takes notice of me or anyone who really cares? Or a middle-aged woman or elderly person in the frailty of life, ups and downs in the Christian life, to be anchored by the thought of God's grace that his eyes are constantly upon us and he looked upon our humble condition, lowly condition, and he has given us the gift of his son to indwell us. He has stooped low in order to lift us up together with the Lord Jesus. But then Mary continues to sing. Secondly, God not only with his eyes look upon us in our lowly state, but he also opens his hand to satisfy the needs of his people, and he does so by giving Christ. Verse 52, he scatters the proud in their self-confidence. He's a God who opposes the proud, and he mentions this ongoing applicable law in the kingdom of God that God is a God who always brings down the mighty and the proud in whatever source of boasting they have God scatters them and destroys them their intellect, their wealth, their position, their influence whatever they put their trust in he sends them away empty despoils them of any satisfaction he brings them low he by his mighty arm humbles the proud But on the flip side, Mary joyfully declares, verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. He fills the empty with good things. Isn't that what God has done for you in the gospel? That he has destroyed in your native pride and sinfulness the thrones in your own hearts of yourself. He has scattered all the sources of your pride, your faith, your good works, your heritage. He has absolutely brought you low in the realization of the bankruptcy of all you tend to fill your hands with. And he brings you to feel your need of him, your hunger, your poverty, your emptiness, apart from Jesus Christ. And then he fills the hungry with good things. When you come with empty hands, when you come hungry, when your soul is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then he fills you with the righteousness of Christ, with every spiritual blessing, with the riches of your Savior, with the joy of salvation. And Mary's declaring what God has done for her in the coming 
of the Savior, that Christ, the Savior, has found Mary. He was to be found in her. And he has begun to fill her to the brim, and her cup began to overflow with good things, as the Lord does the same thing for every sheep in the riches of his grace. He's a God who opens his hands to satisfy the needs of his people. These are soul thirsty. And he says, come to me and drink from me. Is your soul hungry? He says, I'm the bread of life. Come feed upon me. Are you poor? Then he's the Savior who is rich in his grace and bestows salvation upon the humble. He fills your souls with good things when he opens the mighty arm and hand and stretches it out to you by his lavish grace to fill your emptiness. But then thirdly, um, Mary's eye goes from the Lord's eyes to the Lord's hands to the Lord's mouth. Verse 55, she sings of the uh, grace of God in the fullness of the Spirit in the fact that God keeps all his promises that his mouth has uttered the promises to Abraham and to his offspring forever, and he has kept his promise in the sending of Jesus Christ. The promise of Genesis 12, all nations being blessed through the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, the seed of the son of Abraham being more numerous, or seed of a promise of Genesis 22, when Isaac was offered up on the altar of sacrifice, the promise of the substitute, the only beloved son, who will ultimately take sins away. It's through the seed, the Lord Jesus being born in the uh, womb of Virgin Mary, that God will fulfill all the promises. You have all the more reason to magnify the Lord and Rejoice in God because you not only see that promise fulfilled in embryonic form, because you have seen Jesus Christ dying on the cursed tree as a ransom for your salvation to bring you to the kingdom of God, to redeem you for himself. And it's all of God's doing. He's faithful to his promise. And because of these things, great things what God has done, He stretched out his hand. He looked up with his own eyes upon our humble, lowly, sinful condition because he has spoken and kept his word. Mary's soul magnifies God and bursts out in a song of joy. Brothers and sisters, that's Christian worship. And worship is a supernatural phenomenon. It cannot be worked from within. It cannot be produced among ourselves. It needs to come down from above and given by God through his spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. And as we see in fellowship and in worship, joy and blessings and blessedness abounding in this passage, there's only one thing that creates it. There's only one place where you discover it. You find it all in Jesus Christ. And you receive it, you lay hold of it by faith.
make we truly receive the Lord Jesus by faith. May we eye the Lord Jesus with a love, with rejoicing, with glorying in him. May we continually magnify him as our Savior, and may our soul continually rejoice in him. Let's uh, pray together.